Tonight I want us to look at this enemy, the devil. We took uh, time enough this morning to try to define who he is, the highest of all created beings, with the possible exception of Michael, the archangel. But it seems fairly conclusive from Scripture that Michael is not any higher than Satan if he's as high in his created authority in the original creation. And uh, Satan's kingdom is very structured, organized, like a military organization with levels of command. And uh, even though Satan cannot be omnipresent or omniscient, his counterfeit is spread out over the world through a spiritistic means of communication so that this arch enemy of God and your enemy can keep very close in touch with everything that's going on in the world in just a few moments of time, he knows. And he hates you with a cruel hatred. And he would destroy you if he could. But believers have absolutely nothing to fear. In fact, God wants us to be fearless, but not in a presumptuous way. I remember as a young boy, we used to sing uh, one of the choruses. And uh, someone invented the uh, chorus, uh, if Satan doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. And I just kind of tremble when I think of that sort of careless, flippant almost, disregard for Satan. He's not someone to be flippantly or carelessly uh, referred to. He's an awesome created being with an awesome kingdom. But even having said that, God wants you and me to be absolutely fearless. So hopefully we all have a fairly accurate biblical definition of who this terrible enemy is, how he's organized, how that these powers of darkness come very close to you and me, and uh, we are to uh, resist this kingdom uh, steadfast, uh, in the faith, and be victorious over it. Now the second question you remember we're addressing about each enemy after we define who he is, is how does he tempt me? And I would just like to suggest some of the ways in which Satan is revealed as the tempter in Scripture. One of the first is that he tempts us to act on important decisions independent of God's direction. We make our own decision without referring to what God has said. In fact, Satan is very clever about questioning what God has said. That's what he did with Eve. 
And she questioned God's word, God's absolute, that she was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or she would surely die. And then when Satan came at uh, Adam uh, through his wife, he too made his decision independent of God's direction. And of one thing you can be sure, when you have great and important decisions in your life, those are the times when Satan will do his utmost to try to get you to make a decision independent of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's so important in times of great and large decisions just to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm not capable of making this decision on my own. And I won't make a decision until some way in your sovereignty you show me in every large decision that I've made in life. I'm thankful that God has given me that uh, common sense, that biblical desire to always be sure of his direction. And I've discovered, as many of you have, you can't tell the Lord he's got to do it in a certain way. I'll never forget the first time he moved me from a church I'd been in for 12 years and where I just kind of grew up with the church and we'd been through two large building programs and everything was go. And I couldn't believe God would lead me away from that church. And my wife and I had already decided that if the church gave us a call, we wouldn't go. And then on the morning that they were to vote that evening, God called me to prayer. And I'll never forget it. I was walking and praying. And I said, Lord, you know that church in Oak Park is going to vote on me. And that's as far as I got. With just an overwhelming sense of the Lord's presence drew near to me. And all he said was, Judson's in my plan." And I was broken. I've never been more broken in God's presence than I was then. When God draws near to you, you're humbled in a hurry. And I just was shattered before him. And I wept and I wept. And somehow I knew there was something very sovereign in it. And I said, why me, Lord? Why me? And the answer just rolled back. It's all of God and it's all of grace. It's all of God and it's all of grace. I knew I had to go to that church before they even voted. But God has never been that dramatic in any other decision. I think he knew that he'd just about have to pry me away from that church. I was so deeply entrenched. Hardest thing I ever did was resign that church. But what a wonderful thing. And I can look back now and see how God's hand was in it all. Now other times he's just revealed it to me out of the word. Somehow this last call, I just knew. 
He didn't have to say anything to me. I just knew. And so we never can tell God how he must reveal it. But we do need to say, Lord, you must show me in any way you choose so I'll know. It's a wonderful thing when you're out there on the mission field and darkness is closing in and, and uh, you're battling for your very life and your family. If you can just say, oh God, I know I'm where you want me to be. That's a wonderful, wonderful assurance. And so be very careful when you have great decisions not to make a decision independent of God. Just make sure you know and let God determine how he's going to tell you, but he'll tell you. And uh, I could just talk on that all night. But I must hurry on. A second way he tempts us. He seeks to get us to lie and believe his lies. Deception is his chief strategy and tool. Everything about Satan's kingdom is a lie. It's all deception. And even when he tells the truth, it's a lie. That's what he did with Jesus, remember? He tempted him with Scripture, but he was misapplying it. And it was a lie, what he was saying. He's a deceiver. Jesus said in John 8:44 that when he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a deceiver, and every time he gets his hooks into you and me. It's because we've been deceived. And the only way that you really come to victory is through understanding the truth and applying the truth against him and stand in the truth, abide in it, live it, be very careful about the problem of lying. Seems to be a sin that comes out of the flesh, but it quickly aligns you with Satan and his whole program because he's a liar. If you have a problem of lying, be sure that you correct it quickly. I remember a man that I dealt with on this issue, and uh, the way he dealt with it, many times he would lie about the most inconsequential things just to kind of make himself look better, and he would lie before he even realized he was lying. And it was in kind of nonsense situations that it almost would have been ludicrous to have told whoever he said it to, that he was telling a lie. But he began to become so convicted about it, he said, Lord, just show me before I lie that I'm about to do it. 
And the Lord held him at that. And that's the way he began to lick it. The Lord was just reminding him he was about to tell a lie and he would correct it before he did it. Number three, he seeks to make us afraid of him and his power. He roars like a lion, 1 Peter 5, 8 says. I mentioned in one of the previous sessions that fear is almost like faith. In the kingdom of darkness, fear is the chief motivation Satan uses to get people to serve him and to do his will. If you doubt that, you talk to somebody who's been into Satanism. And Satan always leads them on deeper and deeper into it by making them afraid. If they don't do it, something disastrous will happen, and it'll happen. Don't ever mistake the power of Satan to manipulate things and make them happen. That's a very real kingdom. And people soon learn you don't resist what Satan wants you to do when you're into that system or you'll suffer. And it's a very, very fearful kingdom. And so he wants to make us afraid. And he's so subtle at this. And I discover this in many Christians. They don't want to study into spiritual warfare because that's too spooky. And they're afraid of it. And that's disastrous. Because Satan's going to press the battle to them whether they acknowledge his presence or not. He may be very subtle, very uh, sneaky, the way he gets at you. But you're a target. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you're yielded to him to serve him, there isn't anyone in the world that he targets more than you. He hates you with a cruel hatred. That's why it's so necessary for you to understand your biblical authority and why you can be absolutely fearless when you face him in battle. He rules through fear. Number four, he seeks to accuse us and destroy our sense of self-worth. This, again, is one of his chief tactics. He's the accuser. I suppose if we uh, had folk lift their hands tonight, when you've had thoughts in your mind, you're no good, you're a failure, why don't you just give up? You're, you're just a bummer. You're never going to... Multitudes of people get under assault that way, accusing them. Satan's a notorious for tempting you on one end 
of the scale and then accusing you on the other. Over here, it'll put you terrible thoughts like we mentioned the other night. Why don't you grab that knife and run it into your child? Or why don't you curse God? Or why don't you pray to Satan? And those are real ways in which the devil tempts people. And then over here, he'll say, look at you. You claim to be a Christian. And you could have thoughts about praying to Satan or killing your wife or your husband. What kind of a worthless, wicked person are you? He's the accuser. Now, how do you combat that? Only with biblical truth. And I brought Neil Anderson's book into the pulpit with me tonight, deliberately. And I notice we have some of his books back on the table. And if you haven't read his books, you ought to. One of the most important things for a Christian in spiritual warfare is to know who you are. Many of us don't really know who we are. I mean, we haven't quite accepted that. The accuser's been after us so much, and maybe life has sort of, you know, maybe our parents didn't encourage us very much, or some other circumstance of life has kind of already conditioned us to think we're not much. I had a friend who was Dutch, and she said she had to admit it was true in her Dutch community that the attitude was, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get that feeling. We're not much. That's a terrible lie. And Dr. Anderson's done a wonderful favor for us by helping us get a biblical understanding of who we are. Let me just read you some of the uh, things that he's lifted out of the Scripture. Um, in the uh, present tense, so you can grasp this. Now listen to it, and I'll just read them rapidly without the Scripture text. I'm the salt of the earth. I'm the light of the world. I'm a child of God. I'm part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life. I'm Christ's friend. I'm chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm enslaved to God. I'm a son of God. God is spiritually my father. I'm a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. I'm a temple, a dwelling place of God. His spirit has his life in me. I'm united to the Lord and am one in spirit with him. I'm a member of Christ's body. I'm a new creation. I'm reconciled to God. I'm a minister of reconciliation. I'm a son of God and one in Christ. I'm an heir of God since I'm a son of God. I'm a saint. I'm God's workmanship. I'm a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I am righteous and holy. I'm a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I'm an expression of the life of Christ because he is my life. I'm chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. I'm a son of light and not of darkness. I'm a holy partaker 
of the heavenly calling. I'm one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. I'm an alien and a stranger in this world in which I temporarily live. I'm an enemy of the devil. I'm a child of God, and I will resemble Christ when he returns. I'm born of God, and the evil one, the devil, cannot touch me. Wow! Who are you? You better know. Because the accuser, he'll deny that. But nobody can rob you of that. Because that's what God has made you. And sense of self-worth must be centered in who you are in relation to your Lord. And when that's sure, he doesn't get very far accusing you because you can come right back at him. A fifth way that he tempts us, he seeks to get us to desire the power he can give to us. And in the process, he wants us to worship him. That's what's happening to people who are getting into spiritism and witchcraft and Satanism. They are desiring his power. And please don't ever feel that he has no power to give them. Why do you think most of those rock musicians are praying to Satan? And while they're doing so, they're writing popular hit songs that are capturing young people and pulling them in. And these people are getting wealthy and wealthy and wealthy. Miserable, but wealthy. Many of them are committing suicide because Satan's a murderer and uh, he's ruthless. But what an awful way to be tempted to want Satan's power when our Lord is infinitely greater. And that's really what we want to emphasize tonight. How, how do we overcome it? What is our victory? What has God provided us? that makes us um, really undefeatable. Uh, did you ever stop to think that uh, you're invincible to do the will of God? You see, that's very essential to healthy spiritual living. And it's part of understanding who you are and the weapons of your warfare. And that's really the book, the message of Ephesians, about the spiritual riches believers have. And I like the way that Paul closes out the epistle. We've already mentioned that this is really the spiritual warfare handbook of the New Testament. And it's a marvelous study about spiritual warfare. Now, you can study the book of Ephesians without uh, hardly understanding that. But if 
You study the book of Ephesians apart from the spiritual warfare emphasis, you've really missed it. And that's why when he comes down to the closing, he uses this terminology. Finally, the Phillips translated it in conclusion. Some have put it in summation. What he really is saying, now pulling it all together, and if you don't get this, you've missed it. Because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you're either living it out and going on from victory to victory, or you need to get back to the basics and understand who you are. So he says, now drawing it all together, and then what he says is very significant. Be strong. That word strong is a very strong word. It literally means to be invincible. Be explosively powerful. It's a word again from which we get our word dynamite. Christians, in relation to their battle with darkness, are to see themselves as explosively strong, invincibly strong, able to do the will of God. All oh, that's so important in this day in which we live where there's so much against us. To be able to rest in the marvelous truth, I can go out where God has called me and I can do his will there. And nothing can stop me. That's what we're to recognize and understand. But it's not a presumptuous strength. In fact, there are four citadels of strength. I'm going to use a dynamic color here, red, for these. There are four citadels of strength that make you, as a believer, if you appropriate them and use them in your daily life, that make you absolutely invincible, strong, able to do God's will, whatever it is. The first one has to do with my union with Christ. And uh, it's in such a short statement you'd almost miss it. In fact, I did miss it for years. I studied this passage and I really thought it only had to do with the armor. The armor is only one part of four great citadels of strength. And it's so short and so concise, you almost miss it. What is it? It's that little phrase, in the Lord. What makes you invincible and strong? It's because you're in the Lord. You're united with Christ in all of his person and his work. 
Now, that's a marvelous truth. And it's an important truth. In fact, it's the chief truth of the book of Ephesians. That's why it's so close to finally. In summation, you better get this. You're in the Lord. Now, that appears over 40 times in its various forms of expression in the book of Ephesians. I don't know if you've dwelled on that or not, but if you haven't, you need to learn to start dwelling <laughs> because it's a tremendous truth. It has so much meaning to it. Now, we've been worshiping the Lord here, and I liked what was stated tonight by Randy that warfare and worship are inseparably related. They just have to be together. And the very heart of effective warfare is healthy worship. Now, I have to confess to you that I wondered how to worship the Lord for a number of years as a pastor and even as one who often would walk before him in prayer and wanted to worship but I didn't really understand how until the Lord taught me doctrinal praying. And by the way, in those little uh, blue booklets, prayer number four, if you read it, will be almost a copy of what I'm going to share you with you tonight. How to put the truth into prayer. Well, what does it mean to be in the Lord? Pardon me for a moment. What does it mean to be inseparably united with Christ? Well, first of all, it means you're in his name. You're hidden with Christ in God, as we saw in Colossians, but you're in his name. Did you ever stop to think the wonder of that? I believe all of us ought to pray his name over our personal lives and our families and our ministry and against the devil and all that he's trying to do to oppose us every day we live. His name is powerful. It's a name above every name. He's Lord. He's Jehovah God. He's Jesus. He's the Savior. He's your Savior. And there's no Savior but Him. He's Christ. He's God's anointed one. He's the anointed prophet who told you the way and who is the way. He's the anointed priest who offered a better sacrifice. And He's the sacrifice for sin. He's the anointed king who does rule in his sovereignty, but one of these days in glory and great power he's going to rule absolutely, totally. Now that's powerful stuff. And when you begin to pray that name above every name, over your personal life and your walk with God, 
and over your wife or your husband and your children and the mission you're with and where you're laboring. It's powerful. Makes you invincible and strong. And oh, you can just worship the Lord just praying through his name. But certainly in the Lord doesn't stop there. It means you're united with Christ in his incarnation, his humanity. Now, we know about that. We celebrate it every Christmas. But it's something to be lived out every day that we live. To recognize that the perfect humanity of Christ is your worthiness. Why do you think God blesses you? Because you're so good and you're making it so well in the Christian life? No. He blesses you because you're in Christ. You see, Christ fulfilled all of the law. He pleased God in every way. And he overcame Satan and the humanity of his being made in the likeness of sinful flesh and the world system. And you walk before God worshiping Christ because he was a human being. You see, that's how he became your Savior. He became one of us. It's wonderful to worship Christ in the glory of his humanity. You're one with him in his cross and everything that Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary, including, as the writer to Hebrews tells us, he died that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And your strength is that you're in the work of the cross. You're dead to the rule of sin and death and Satan with Christ. And uh, you're in his resurrection, the mightiest thing that ever happened, that all of hell did everything it could to stop. Happened. He rose again. And that resurrection life belongs to you. And you can just walk and worship the Lord in the wonder of these various aspects of the Lord's life and ministry just for hours. I've done it. I never knew what it was to love my Lord until I began to walk with him in the wonder of what he did in his incarnation, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension where he ascended up far above all principalities and powers, and then he lifted me up and seated me there with himself, giving me total authority over Satan and the whole kingdom of darkness to resist it steadfast in the faith, knowing that Satan does have to flee. And then I'm united with him in his glorification. He's there to shepherd me, to lead me, to love me, to pray for me, to listen to my prayers and my broken heart and to attend to me in all of my needs. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He's my shepherd. He calls me by name. 
and he goes before me. See, all of that's in that little phrase, and I shared with you how that I'd been praying this way for years. When suddenly he brought it home to my heart, I'm so united with him, he won't even come again without me. And when I heard myself praying that, I just burst into tears. The wonder of it. That's why you're invincible. You're in the Lord. And so that's a very important thing to dwell upon and to know and to abide in the doctrinal truth of it. I'm in the Lord and learn everything you can about it. I would suggest you go through the book of Ephesians. Mark every time that phrase or its equivalent is there. Meditate on it. Powerful stuff. You'll begin to find your courage level rising just because you understand you're in the Lord. But the second citadel of strength is the power, maybe I should say, and person of the Holy Spirit. Be strong in the power of his might. Now, whenever you find reference made in Scripture to the power of God coming into your own experience, it's always related to the work of the Holy Spirit. How does the power of God come into your life? It's by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Lord Jesus, you remember, forbid his disciples uh, to go out and serve him until they had been endued with power. They were to wait at Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come. Now, being strong in the Lord means you have a vital, personal, living out relationship with the Spirit of God. Now you begin to see why it's so important to understand your victory over the flesh. Because you can never have victory over the flesh without honoring the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And every time you have a fleshly sin loom up in your life and you use the biblical method to overcome it, the third step is always to ask the Holy Spirit to replace that temptation with the fruit of his control. Now what are the ministries of the Holy Spirit? There are seven that are clearly set forth in Scripture. And I believe in your prayer life and your worship life, you ought to honor these. And I find it tremendously stimulating to me in my prayer life to just pray through all seven ministries. First of all, he has a convicting ministry. How long has it been since you really honored the Holy Spirit in that great and powerful part of his work. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth is come, he will convict the world of sin 
of righteousness and of judgment to come. And he did that in all of our hearts in some way or we would never have come to Christ. The Spirit of God reached out and drew us and made us aware of our sin. And when you walk in the power of the Spirit, it means that you're constantly saying, Oh, Holy Spirit of God, I honor you that uh, your chief work, according to our Savior, was that you were coming into the world to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And I ask you to intensify that great ministry right here where I labor. Flow through me in that work. And then, of course, he has an indwelling ministry. He comes to live in us. And it's because he indwells us that he's able to illumine the Scripture so you can understand it. He's able to comfort you. He's able to uh, minister the fruit of his control within you. And you invite him to bring the fruit of his control into your mind so you think loving and kind and patient and gentle good thoughts. And so those emotions begin to flow out of your life. So the Spirit of God indwells you. He also seals you. That's one of his major ministries. God put upon you the seal of his ownership in the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's God's down payment guaranteeing what he set out to do. He baptized you into the body of Christ. He made you a member of all other believers. You know, one of the most beautiful things that'll help you keep unity with your fellow believers is when you recognize that the Holy Spirit made you a member of one body. It's His unity that He established. We're simply responsible to live out what is already true. You know, that just begins to change your attitude toward some Christian brother or sister that kind of rubs you the wrong way. When you know that that person's a member and you're a member with him of the body of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, he also quickens you. I don't know if... Uh, You've experienced this, but I certainly have the necessity of being quickened, of life flowing into me. Now, there are three aspects to being quickened. When you were saved, you were quickened. God brought you to life. But throughout your lifetime, he pours life into you. There have been times when I've been so tired, I just couldn't go anymore. And then I've said, oh, Lord, the Holy Spirit's a quickening spirit. 
and I just ask him to quicken me. And I don't know how he does it, but all of a sudden, life flows into your body from God because he's a quickening spirit and he will quicken you at the resurrection. In the moment in the twinkling of an eye, your old mortal body that may be full of pain and disease and wearing out and getting old, that body will in the moment in the twinkling of an eye by the power of the Holy Spirit be raised an incorruptible body, an eternal body in which you'll live out the fullness of your redemption for all eternity. It's a marvelous thing, the quickening ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has an interceding ministry. He teaches you to pray. He prays for you with groanings that can't be uttered. And then he has, a, he has an empowering ministry. He fills you with his power. And we're filled with folly if we enter into a day even, but especially when you have opportunities to minister. If you fail to wait before God and say, Lord, I dare not that responsibility without being filled with your spirit. And so we're to be strong through the mighty ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, as you study spiritual warfare in connection with our victory over Satan, that even the Lord Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are very foolish if we think we can be strong without a living, vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I mean keep good biblical balance. Don't go off on some wild tangent, but be sure in your worship you're including, honoring the Holy Spirit. The third citadel of strength that we have is the whole armor of God. And, of course, this is a very uh, extensive um, portion of the text. And most of us have kind of thought that's the major message of it. And many times we've missed these two. These two, you see, are developed in the earlier part of the book. This isn't. That's why these two are just mentioned, because he's just calling our minds to what he's already told us. But this one he develops. And I don't have time to go into each part of the armor tonight. My second book, Overcoming the Adversary, is really a study of the armor of God. And let me just say that the armor is absolutely necessary daily. Now, there's a sense in which all of this armor you put on when you were saved. 
because it's really Christ. But once again, in the highly relational uh, aspect of our faith, our spiritual clothing is something we need to honor every day. And uh, I hope that you have developed a practice of putting on the armor piece by piece, the loin girdle of truth. There are four great citadels of truth set forth in Scripture. One is, is the Bible, is the word of truth. Of course, Jesus Christ is the truth. The Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth. And the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. And if you're going to walk in truth, you've got to be rightly related to all of those. You have to be related to Christ. There has to be a good, wholesome, constant relationship to God's Word. We've already talked about the Holy Spirit. We haven't talked about the church. Very important for us to be a part of a local church where we experience the protection of the body, the identification with the body in its protection. And of course, it also reminds us that this is one of the chief ways that Satan attacks us. He lies to us. And every day, when you put on the loin girdle of truth, you ought to be mindful. Lord, Satan's going to try to deceive me today. Help me to recognize it and to walk in the truth. The breastplate of righteousness, almost without exception, we're tempted to trust in our own righteousness. But it's not our own. It's his righteousness. The sandals of peace. Satan tries to rob you of your peace. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought of it this way? That maybe the Lord's allowing that so that you can go to the Lord in prayer? You know, that's what he said. The peace that uh, when you seek the Lord in prayer... He brings a peace that passes understanding, according to Philippians 4. I've experienced that many times, just to disquiet within me. You see, you, you have intellectual peace, peace with God. That's strictly by justification. That doesn't have anything to do with what you do. It's just what God gives you. But emotional peace, the peace of God, is a different matter. That requires a prayer life. And it requires a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I've had times when I felt disquieted and just knew that God was calling me to prayer. I don't have time to develop all of this because the Hour is getting late, and we've covered a lot of material already. But it's so important to walk in your peace. And then we need the shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts of Satan. 
You just learn to depend upon the Lord to hedge you in, to build that large shield about you that protects you in every direction. And it quenches all the fiery darts of Satan. That doesn't mean that the Lord will never allow Satan to get at you. But you see, when they go through the shield of faith, those arrows cease to become the destroying missiles of the devil. They become the refining fires of the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing to let the Lord refine you. I called it in the test he had with Satan's uh, attempt to give him a thorn in the flesh, but he yielded it up to God. But uh, we need to move on to the helmet of salvation. This is a beautiful picture of Christ. Salvation is Christ. In fact, the word for salvation in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And when you put on the helmet, you're covering your mind with Christ, asking him to protect you from the intruded thoughts of Satan and also to give you the thoughts of Christ. And then you have the sword of the Spirit. And it reminds you to get at that scripture memorization. Every time I put it on, the Lord reminds me that I'm memorizing his word. And uh, I need to keep at it because it's the sword of the Spirit. Well, the final part of the armor is uh, the allness of prayer. And I suppose if one of these parts of the armor is more important than the other three, it's this one. Um, and I suppose the reason why I would say that is that this is the way you put on the other elements of protection. I don't know any way to claim your union with Christ apart from prayer. I don't know any way to honor the person and work of the Holy Spirit in a personal, intimate, vital way than through prayer. There's certainly no way to put on the armor apart from prayer. It's not something physical, it's spiritual. And you claim it through prayer. And the Word of God says that this makes us absolutely invincible. And it's not a spiritual pride. It's just the opposite. It's spiritual humility. For you must realize that everything that makes you strong comes from God. And He provides it for you. And when 
You're walking in your protection. You can watch over your family. And I must close with a question that um, someone handed me this morning, and I promised to answer questions. So let me just read it to you. You say that we need to bring up our children, teaching them about spiritual warfare. Where do we start? We want uh, to be able to understand. We want them to be able to understand on their level to take Satan and his power seriously, but that Jesus is greater and he over can overcome. I believe that spiritual warfare for Christian parenting is one of the most important concepts that any of us can develop. And of course, teaching your children really begins with you beginning to live out uh, these truths we've been talking about before your children. And they will begin to hear you pray when they hear you pray how wonderful it is to be united with Christ. They will begin to hear you honor the work of the Holy Spirit and follow you as you put on the armor and how important prayer is to you. And the best way any of us ever teaches what we model, what we live. I never took a lot of time to sit down with my girls as they grew up and, and really teach them spiritual warfare. But they learned it. <laughs> they learned it because we had to live it in our family. Just by the fact that the Lord had led me into this study, there were many times when there was tremendous battle. And those of you who've read my first book have read the testimony about our daughter Judy and how she came under tremendous demonic assault. And she learned how to put on the armor and stand against Satan. I've often said it when my daughter Judy was just a little girl, I'd almost rather had her prayers than anybody else in the world. She really knew how to pray. And she taught it, or she learned it in the fierceness of her own battle. And so our children need to be taught the truths. First of all, just by role modeling it. And then if they come under assault, you have to get a little more directive to them and teach them how to resist. Let me just close with this very fresh illustration. We had a young couple come to our church shortly before um, I resigned. And I didn't really get to know them well, but I knew they were a very sincere couple. They had been to the Bill Gothard seminars and really were putting many of those principles into action. But shortly after I resigned, uh, they got in touch with me. 
And they told me a story of their family that really was alarming. They had a little five-year-old girl. And uh, she would be taken over by terrible rages. She would just lose control of herself totally. And she would kick her mother's knees and shins and scratch at her and just hated blaze out of her eyes. And one day, they didn't want to tell anybody, of course, this. They didn't know what people would think. And they didn't know what to do about it. They tried to discipline her. and It would only make her worse. And uh, one day she called. Her husband said, you've got to come home and rescue me. This child is about to devour me. Well, they got on. And they came and told me what I've just told you. And they said, what are we going to do? Well, I suggested that the next time she went into one of those rages, that either one of them, preferably the father, would just take her. And, of course, it was hard to get a hold of her because she was just going every direction, kicking and biting and scratching. And I said, just take her little arms and you just firmly conceal them to her body and even grip her legs between your knees if you need to. And without saying anything to her, you just start to pray. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you just command any power of darkness assigned to rule her to release his wicked, evil work against her. And we'd already told them this is doubtlessly from an ancestral claim on her and it sure turned on the lights with this young man because his father, all of his life, had been a man subject to violent, violent rages without any explanation. Well, the first time this father did that, and he was praying doctrinally over her, taking authority over any powers of darkness trying to rule her, and she grew quiet. And she had just been spilling out hate for her daddy. And when she grew quiet, all of a sudden, she reached up and she kissed his cheek. And she said, I love you, daddy. And she was crying. That little girl has learned spiritual warfare out of sheer necessity. And she's learning more all the time. She's accepted Christ. How when these attempts of demonic powers enter into terrible rages, begin, she's learning how to resist and just refuse it and ask the Lord Jesus to put in her life and heart his control she commands the power of darkness to leave. Now, most of us don't have that dramatic of a problem to deal with with our children. Praise the Lord. But 
Every one of us, if you have spiritual seeing eyes, you'll be able to see times in the actions and conduct of your children. When if you can see them, and they're invisible so you can't see them, you would recognize wicked spirits trying to rule the lives of your children. And that's why it's so important that you're protecting them by watching over them in the authority of your union with Christ and the power of the Spirit of God and the whole armor of God and the allness of prayer. I like the way verse 18 says, we're to be like sentries on duty watching over our loved ones and families. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to worship our Lord Jesus Christ in His full and total provision for His children, for His own, to be strong and invincible in our union with Christ, in the mightiness of the Holy Spirit's power and ministry, in the wholeness of your armor, in the allness of prayer, so that we can move out into our responsibilities, confident, sensitive, listening, able to face all of those devious ways in which Satan tries to do his wicked work against us, remaining more than conquerors through him that loved us. Teach us that deep truth. Give us the enablement of grace to walk in it through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you.